Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's Contours podcast, a publication of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. My name is Nick Harris, and I am the Senior Analyst and Head of the State Resilience and Fragility Program here at the New Lines Institute. I will be the host for today's discussion on President Biden's trip to Europe, his first foreign trip of his presidency, which includes a series of summits with the leaders of the G7, NATO, and the European Union, and will culminate tomorrow with a long face-to-face in Geneva with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Biden will be looking to send a strong signal to allies in Europe and further afield that the United States is ready to tackle global challenges such as the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change, to counter Russian activities in Europe, and to try to whet the appetite of European allies to join the U.S. in waging great power competition against China. Looming over President Biden's trip, of course, is tomorrow's summit with Putin, a man whom the American leader referred to as a killer just this March, and on the heels of two crises, one being the recent Russian military buildup in Ukraine and the other in Belarus that have demanded a strong U.S. position in opposition to Russia. Despite his colorful description of Putin's character, Biden will be pushing to achieve a stable and predictable relationship between the United States and Russia, while trying to unite European allies around shared transatlantic values to stand up to Putin. All of this will be happening while President Biden tries to move beyond his predecessor's enmity towards NATO, to reaffirm the importance of the transatlantic alliance, and to have that tough discussion with allies on the cash and contributions they all must make to ensure that NATO has the capabilities to be effective and relevant in the competitions of the future and on the battlefields of tomorrow. And even while he is in Europe, President Biden's team appears set to try to mobilize the American people toward a multi-decade, potentially multiple generations long U.S. effort to focus on Eurasia and engage in what is already being referred to as a new Cold War with China. Biden's meeting with Putin could potentially be the first step in a long effort to broker an eventual Russo-American collaboration to curb China's power. Joining me for this important discussion are four leading experts on Russia, NATO, Europe, and geopolitics. First, my New Lines Institute colleague, Caroline Rose. Caroline is the Senior Analyst and Program Head for Power Vacuums here at the New Lines Institute. Next, Jim Townsend. Jim is currently an Adjunct Senior Fellow at the Center for New American Security and Transatlantic Security Program, and he's the co-host of its popular Brussels Sprouts podcast. He is one of the world's foremost experts on U.S. transatlantic security policy, including toward NATO, Europe, and the geopolitics of European security. Jim had a long, distinguished, and award-winning career in the U.S. government working on these issues at the Department of Defense and the U.S. Congress. From 2009 to 2017, Jim was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO policy, and from 1998 to 2002, he was posted in a senior role at the U.S. mission to NATO. Next, we have Rachel Rizzo. Rachel is the Director of Programs at the Truman National Security Project, and she's an adjunct fellow at the Center for New American Security in the Transatlantic Security Program. From 2019 to 2020, Rachel was a Robert Bosch Foundation Fellow, where she served as a visiting fellow at the German Bundestag and in the German Office of Human Rights Watch. 
She also worked on transatlantic security issues at the Center for New American Security, including as the Andrew J. Basevich Jr. USA Fellow. Rachel is emerging as one of the leading voices in Washington, D.C. on transatlantic security policy and U.S. policy toward Europe. And last, but certainly not least, Dr. Ariel Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He is a director of the Energy, Growth, and Security Program at the International Tax and Investment Center. Dr. Cohen is the founder of International Market Analysis Consultancy in Washington, D.C., and he is also a world-renowned expert on Russia and Eurasia. Caroline, Jim, Rachel, and Ariel, thank you for joining us today. I'd like to start by asking Jim the first question and then have Caroline, Rachel, and Ariel follow up with their thoughts. Jim, what does a stable and predictable relationship with Russia look like? Classically, a stable relationship comes from being predictable. Stable relationship is based on there being no surprises. It's based on communications, as you can imagine. It's based on when you're dealing with Russia, it's based on having a predictable force balance where arms control plays a role, where yearly discussions play a role, anything that makes sure that you're not surprised by Russia, that you're not reacting to something, that you're not misinterpreting something. During the Cold War days, I think over time, we developed this relationship with the Soviet Union that was predictable. And this predictability provided the stability that, that everyone wanted. And I think with Putin, it's been hard to do that because he is not predictable. And the communications from him certainly, frankly, can't be trusted. I will say, too, on the U.S. side, we haven't exactly been predictable either, particularly in the past four years. So I think in terms of what can Biden do is I think we've got to return to a place where on a predictable basis, we have a conversation with the Russians. We have stability talks. We had some in years past. But we shouldn't be ricocheting from summit to summit to summit and these summits being announced after some tragedy or something that takes place that causes tension. And so we have a summit. I think it's to have something stable. You've got to have predictability. Predictability can come from having a regular set of discussions at a strategic level where we deal with problems and we notify each other when we have big exercises. There are certain provisions in, in the international scene where we have observers come. We do that regularly anyway, but like not having open skies, the ability of open skies to provide unique intelligence isn't the point. Open skies helps make things predictable. It's, it's a tool towards stability. So things like open skies is something it'd be great to restore so that we have not just another way to watch what the other side is doing, but it's also a confidence building measure. Confidence building measures are part of having a stable relationship. And there's confidence building measures that we have had during the Cold War days, incidents at sea, that type of thing that have provided for us for a process where you can deal with a surprise, like two ships coming upon them in the Pacific. But we need that for the Arctic in this day and age now. So when you talk about 
stability. That's the goal. And you get to that goal through having predictability. And predictability can come from conversations and discussions on a regular basis. It can come from confidence building measures. It can come from arms control. Those are the kinds of things I think that Biden needs to see if we can work towards that. What we're trying to do is get ourselves to a stable international order. And I think that's something we want. And frankly, I think that's what the Russians want too. Rachel, what is your perspective on how we can have a stable relationship with Russia? Sure. I think that's a great question. And I think that I agree with a lot of what Jim said, if not all of what Jim said. I think he's right when he says that a stable relationship comes from being predictable. It's based on there being no surprises. It's based on open communication. And I think that's what Biden will try to achieve in this upcoming summit with Putin. He wants to put guardrails on either side of the Kremlin. He wants a return to diplomacy. And I think it's also good to remember that Biden doesn't think of diplomacy as a reward for Putin's bad behavior. He views diplomacy as a necessity for an unpredictable and unstable world. And I think that's right. He also wants to make sure that Putin isn't going to cause huge problems for Biden's domestic agenda, which is extremely ambitious. He doesn't want a surprise from Putin rolling tanks across eastern Ukraine or something, which would in turn suck up a bunch of his attention when he has so much going on domestically. So I think looking ahead at the summit, if there can be a return to diplomacy, a return to open communication, we'll be much closer to that stable and predictable relationship than we have been for the last four years. Ariel, you've spent a lot of time studying Russia and the geopolitics of Eurasia. Do you think it's feasible in the current environment for President Biden and his team to build this stable relationship with Russia? I think we need to start with the question, is it feasible? Is it possible? And my Russian sources, people who worked with Putin or for Putin, like Gleb Pavlovsky, big political fixer and political strategist says, no, it's not possible. This is not on the agenda. What is on the Kremlin's agenda is what they consider, quote unquote, creative chaos. Why? Because these are the products of two ethoses or two cultures. The first culture is the KGB culture. When you view everybody as an adversary or a loyal follower, there's no gray area ad hoc allies one day and maybe competitors the other day. You're either with us or against us. Very Soviet. Secondly, the 1990s the free-for-all that the toughest, the meanest, the quickest will win. If you remember Putin talking to George W. Bush comparing their dogs, Putin had a bigger dog, and he compared it to the Westland Terrier that George W. had, or Scottish Terrier, maybe. And he said, see, my dog, bigger, meaner, faster. That's how they think. So if you look at the agenda, the strategic issues and arms control that Ambassador Townsend mentioned. Ukraine, where they grabbed a piece, but the rest of eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine, all the way to Odessa, are still on the Russian agenda. When Putin and others say repeatedly, Ukraine is not a historic state. Ukraine is a product of the Soviet regime, meaning it wasn't recognized as an independent state or even an autonomy in the Tsarist Empire. And then this bad guy, Lenin, gave them some extra land from Russia. Syria, 
what is mine is mine and what is yours is negotiable. That a Soviet typical approach that Putin was a product of the Soviet upbringing, training and education in St. Petersburg and in the KGB Red Banner Institute. Space, new technologies, hypersonic missiles. Let's see who is going to outcompete. I think we're going to outcompete the Russians. Cyber, you saw the solar wind attack, the capital pipeline, and the meat packers. So why would you do it before the summit if you don't want to send a message? And finally, democracy, human rights, and the crackdown on anything that moves in Russia that is not following the party line. So you're back to me, somebody who remembers the post-Brezhnev era, the Yuri Andropov, 1983-84, Konstantin Chernenko, 84. He lived a very short period of time. Highly authoritarian regime that is fueled by the two Russian historic afflictions, xenophobia and paranoia. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Ariel, for a very strong list of challenges that we can complicate sort of the Biden administration's approach. Caroline, I want to bring you in because Ariel has given us some really deep insights into the challenges ahead. How would you begin then to start to build some type of movement towards a productive relationship? Thank you, Nick, and thanks everyone for being on with us today. I think that Ambassador Townsend, he hit the nail on the head and that confidence building measures are a key ingredient to putting the relationship with Russia, not necessarily back on track, but trying to gauge the right level of engagement and interaction and effective communication between Washington and Moscow. And I think that's something that hasn't really been said, especially about this upcoming Europe trip is the fact that there are a series of of events that are leading up to the Geneva summit. And all of these events involve interaction with NATO, with the EU, with other very key and important allies of the United States, where the Biden administration is trying to establish consensus and shared interests and return back to strong transatlantic relations as a precursor to the Geneva summit with Putin. And I think that that is the key ingredient here, is that when we're looking to assess what a, not necessarily stable relationship, but a predictable relationship with Russia, Europe plays a huge role with that. And ensuring that the blocks within the EU, the Northern and Southern and Eastern European blocks, there is a level of consensus that the United States can encourage and work within and work with to establish, engage that relationship with Moscow. And I think that this plays into not only the U.S. bilateral ties with Russia, but our policy in the Arctic, New START, the JCPOA, it really trickles into a number of different relationships and foreign policy issues that the U.S. and Russia are involved in. That essentially is the broad strategy that the Biden administration is putting into play here. I think that the Biden administration sees this autocratic trend as an existential threat. And unfortunately, Russia isn't necessarily going to be a very close partner on this. And I think that that from the get go is the assumption that the Biden administration is taking here. What I'm trying to wrap my brain around is that if you look at the dynamic between the United States, China, and Russia today, and this is the three active global powers, the EU is there, but it's more amorphous, it has less tools, it's less militarized, 
So between three of us, China, Russia, US, the logical realpolitik approach would be to split China and Russia no matter what. That's what would Henry Kissinger do. But Russia would ask a huge price for that. They would ask us to close our eyes for all domestic suppression. And on top of that, they would try to carve out a sphere of influence, a classic 19th century, early 20th century sphere of influence in the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, parts of the old Eastern and Central Europe that were dominated and occupied by the Soviet Union and pieces of the Middle East. They would probably ask for Venezuela to recognize that we recognize it as their sphere of influence. Can we do it? Probably not. But with Biden clearly lowering the profile of Ukraine in this whole conundrum and already reducing U.S. objection to Nord Stream 2, I think there's something there. There's some thinking there. Maybe we can have a conversation with Putin on what is his price in order to at least keep Russia neutral in the coming confrontation with China. And whether this can be pulled off or not in today's environment, I honestly don't know. All I know is what Putin articulates or what the Russian leadership articulates is what they call Yalta II. Yalta II would be recognition of Russia as an equal to the United States, just like as Joseph Stalin did with President Roosevelt. The only difference is Joseph Stalin spent 25 million lives of his soldiers fighting the Nazis and capturing Eastern Europe. They were in Eastern Europe already. So Yalta actually codified and set in stone where the troops were after World War II. Putin did not fight any wars, maybe with the exception of Syria, and that was a very little war. And for him to aspire for Yalta II is very, very ambitious. This is a very interesting segue to a question that I wanted to ask Rachel and to ask Jim. There's a lot of talk now that the U.S. is back and the Biden administration has talked about the U.S. being backed. Leaders from the European Union and NATO have talked about how the U.S. is back with the implication being that the last four years the U.S. wasn't engaged as much with Europe and NATO. My question to you two is how can the U.S. and its European allies create a common and also proactive policy towards Russia? And if that is possible, is there also a way for the U.S. to get a twofer and get in sync with its European allies on China in this trip? I would go back to what Caroline said, and I totally agree with it. President Biden views this greater struggle between democracies and authoritarianism as the existential crisis of our time. And so I think it's important to note that this is the lens through which he is viewing his multilateral and bilateral meetings when he is going to Europe. When it comes to Russia, I think that Putin sees Russia as a great power that is on par with the United States. But I think they have no middle class. They have an over-reliance on oil and gas. Their economy is in the dumps. In fact, I think the only reason that we're having these discussions about Russia is the fact that they have an arsenal of nuclear weapons and spend a lot on conventional military means. So I think there are a couple things here when it comes to Russia. We want to ensure that, like Ariel said or, or alluded to, cooperation between Russia and China doesn't get to a point where it becomes a real unmanageable problem for the United States. We want Russia to stop meddling in the elections of Western democracies and conducting cyber attacks against various government agencies and private companies. 
I think Biden has an ambitious domestic agenda. He wants to focus on recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic. He's conducting a foreign policy for the middle class, as, as Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has said. He wants to focus on China in terms of foreign policy. So I think he wants to make sure that like I said before, Putin isn't going to create problems for him in pursuing those goals. And so I think he's going to come to Europe with a really important message in the next week or so, which is that America is back. We are recommitted to our European allies. We unequivocally support Article 5 and to start rebuilding the trust that has been lost over the last four years. Just to add to that, I think we're also dealing with America is back. It's a, it's a great tagline and, you know, everyone loves it. Build back better and all, all that. And we all salute. But I think I, this visit with Europe is going to have to do a couple things. One is Biden and the U.S. team is going to have to really plumb the depths there among the allies to see just how much a problem that we might have in terms of do they trust that it'll be Biden or a Democrat being uh, reelected in four years, or are the Europeans hedging because they think that there'll be a Trump-like or even Trump coming back in four years? Will the midterms pull the rug out from under the administration? So I think when Biden gets there and he talks to the European allies, certainly they'll talk about China, they'll talk about Europe. But I think there's also going to be trying to figure out just how strong and stable the foundation is under Biden's feet politically at home. I think that's going to be something behind the scenes as they talk, as a judge. I mean, they all know Biden, but Biden as a personality and as a leader is well known in Europe. I think what is such a shock is more the political problems here in the United States that are causing this leader that they know so well to come over without as strong a hand as he might have had should the politics have been different. So he's going to come in. So that's really one of the big things for the Europeans, at least, is that. Secondly, like I said, they're all going to be happy to hear that America is back. But when you talk to Europeans, if you talk to a Central European, Eastern European, it's all about Russia. Southern Europeans, it's about the Mediterranean, the Sahel, Northern Africa. And when we talk about China, you're going to have different views across the alliance. And we're not as, as far apart as we used to be. I think we're coming closer and closer. But I think in terms of what can we do together, NATO and the EU, the US and the EU, the transatlantic community, how can we deal with China? That's a conversation that I think has really just begun, quite honestly, where we've come closer and closer in terms of recognizing the rise of China as somewhat of a threat, different than Russia, but somewhat of a threat. But where we're not coming so close together is, so what do you do about it? Because both the United States and Europe still depend on China for trade and uh, finance, all kinds of things. The U.S. does too. We shouldn't fool ourselves. You know, we can't just walk away from China. So that conversation is more complex. It's more difficult. It involves not just the military or defense situation, which is a very small part of it in terms of Europe, but instead involves trade and other things. And that's more of the European Union and the U.S.-EU summit and what we might begin to talk about there. When it comes to Russia, though, I think that's something where it's an easier discussion in terms of, so who's in charge of dealing with that and how do we go about dealing with that? And that's certainly something everyone acknowledges that discussion takes place 
at NATO and that the U.S. being back, a lot of that means the U.S. is continuing to work on its force posture in Europe to enhance deterrence there, doing military mobility, et cetera, et cetera. Arms control is going to be become a feature. And so that conversation is going to be an easier one to have. And it's one that will provide a great relief to the Central and East European allies because America being back means they feel a little more comfortable. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but to Dr. Cohen, in, in terms of what he was saying, in terms of the challenge that Putin presents to the United States and to NATO and to individual allies, Germany being different than Poland when it comes to relations with Russia, he is certainly correct in saying that whether it's looking for a stable relationship or it's looking for trying to figure out among the allies, how do you handle Russia? It's going to be a challenge. Putin is going to make it easier for us. Putin is not Gorbachev or even Brezhnev in a lot of ways. We're dealing with someone who's quite an opportunist, someone who is looking for those gaps, those seams, those incidents that he can take advantage of to continue his assault on weakening the West. And we all know that, and we're going to have to deal with that. And I'd rather deal with Putin as allies altogether than not. So that, I think, is going to be some of the atmospherics as we look at China, as we look at Russia, and as the Europeans look at us. I completely agree with my colleagues on this. And I think that in many ways, as they raise the issue of China, and also essentially, if there can be consensus, you can hit two birds with one stone in some ways. Particularly with the 2030 reform initiative within NATO strategic concept, because that is also going to be on the agenda this upcoming week in, in Europe. I think that that's going to be something as well for European allies, for NATO and other partners, where the U.S. can see what spaces exist for the United States to counter not only Russian aggression, but also Chinese influence and infiltration. Now, of course, China and Russia operate very differently. And I think that the U.S. is aware of this and they have to have different strategies in place to do so. But at least for the 2030 strategic concept to be updated to where it's not only looking at Eastern Europe, but it's looking at the Arctic, it's looking at Central Asia, it's looking at, to some extent, the Indian Ocean and other areas of the international community where both Russian and Chinese strategies are very well in play. Just because at this point, Rachel mentioned, there are many constraints for Russia, particularly with expanding its global posture. However, it's in the Mediterranean. It is in Africa. It is in the Arctic. And the U.S. should be aware of this if the United States wants to compete and you know, essentially be considered a rival of Russia and China. It has to be aware of these different spaces and ready to compete there. I think that the 2030 strategic concept and that update and reform, that's going to be very important to hit two birds with one stone. Bringing NATO into this discussion is important. I am a part of something called the Loisach Group. It's out of Garmisch, the Marshall Center that both the Pentagon and the German Defense Ministry are running. And we are a part of the U.S.-German group that looks at, among other things, U.S., German agenda vis-a-vis -vis Russia, China, and other places. I can tell you based on more than three years of conversations with our esteemed German colleagues, Germany does not want to spend an extra pfennig to fund the Wales 2014 decision of bringing up the national military allocation to 2% of the GDP. Listeners probably know that U.S. is 3.8%, close to 4%. 
and very few countries in NATO are at 2%. Moreover, when you look at the contribution of US, Canada, and UK, that's close to 80%, because US is contributing so much to the NATO budget. Unfortunately, whether it's the Wales decisions of 2014 that were adopted right after Ukraine, or the 2030, I do not see a real commitment from the real big players in Europe to the European defense at the level that would deter Russia. And it's dangerous to talk about Ukrainian membership in NATO. I'm all in favor of Ukrainian and Georgian membership, but our European allies have to be on board. You're also absolutely right. Poland is way ahead in terms of commitment to a military buildup and deterrence, but Poland alone is not sufficient. And on top of that, we have issues vis-a-vis -vis Turkey. Turkey is very strategic on the southern flank of NATO, and also it's facing the Middle East and the Caucasus. Turkey is not 100% in sync with the American policy on Russia. Turkey is buying a lot of gas for reactor nuclear complex at Akkuyu, the S-400 missiles. We have a problem with Ankara on that too. We are not there yet in terms of having our European allies really supporting us and just a vignette. When Trump was president, the Germans said, we cannot allocate more money for common defense because of Trump. Let's see what the Germans are going to say now when they are pushing through the Nord Stream 2. And at the same time, we hope they would contribute to the NATO budget, especially if the Greens come to power, we shall see what the German defense budget would look like. Rachel, I want to turn to you, actually, because I think you'll have some very interesting and unique insights into some of the issues that Ariel put forward, especially regarding Germany and the European NATO dynamic here. You were recently a Bosch fellow in Germany. You had a lot of time to look at transatlantic issues. You're one of the emerging voices that we have here in Washington, D.C., in thinking through these thorny challenges. How would you approach some of the issues that Ariel raises regarding the Germans, the Europeans, and the future of NATO in that context? So looking back on the last four years of the Trump administration, that administration didn't just push Germany hard on defense spending. They actively turned Germans against German defense spending increases because what that rhetoric did consistently harping on Germany, consistently harping on Merkel, that turned German defense spending increases into some pro-Trumpy, pro-American position amongst a lot of the population. And so I think that we have an opportunity here. The Biden administration has an opportunity, but also so do Germans. There is a pro-European, pro-NATO U.S. president in office if the Germans can continue to increase defense spending, can continue increasing their capabilities and prove that they're willing to use those capabilities when necessary without the United States consistently pushing them to do so, then the NATO alliance will be stronger for that. Trump was not the first president to push Europe and Germany to spend more. This has been a consistent theme of U.S. administrations for over two decades. And I don't think that you can deny the fact that over the last four years, we did see increases in defense spending. But the reason for those, I think you can call that into question, is it because the United States pushed so hard or is it because Russia is an increasingly unpredictable actor 
on Europe's eastern flank, and they know that in order to counter Russia, they need to spend more. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the September elections in Germany. Annalena Baerbock, the co-leader of the German Green Party, during her speech at the Atlantic Council last month, talked about her support for Germany in NATO, her support for U.S. presence in Germany her support for increased defense spending. I think where this is going to become really interesting is on Nord Stream 2. If the pipeline isn't finished before the September elections, which I think it will be, but if it's not, and the German Greens are part of a coalition government, then I think we're going to see some pushback there. And so that's what I'll be watching closely. But I do think that the Europeans have an opportunity in front of them to, to spend more and to be more forward-leaning in their foreign policy, and they should seize on that. At the same time, I think the Biden administration does need to support Europeans in their quest for strategic autonomy. I know that there are many different definitions when it comes to strategic autonomy, especially if you talk to the French and then you talk to the Germans, you'll get a different answer. But the Biden administration should stop doing what other administrations have done when Europeans spend more and do more. We really start to push back on that. And I think that Biden and his team would be well suited to pursue a different strategy. So to follow on that, and I think those are very interesting points, Rachel, and you've shown us a very nuanced and deep understanding of German politics in the process. I'd like to ask Jim a question. We talk a lot about how ambitious the Biden team can be, and we've discussed here in some depth all the different challenges. Do you believe that the Biden team should look to compete with Russia globally as some have advocated for or should it really just have more of a narrower, more manageable policy focus and on Russian power in Europe, see what it can get from there, and then reassess a couple of years down the line? I don't consider Russia as a global player, frankly. China certainly is a global player economically, financially, Belt and Road, all of that. Its military is becoming increasingly more capable of going global. They are sending ships every now and then to Europe, warships, to do exercises with the Russian Navy. That's worrisome. They were in the Baltic Sea and Mediterranean. Not in large numbers, but the Chinese have much more of a global presence than the Russians do. I don't look at us or the alliance having to counter Russia on a global basis. I think the center of gravity certainly is in Europe. I think the destabilizing actions by the Russians with cyber attacks and hacking and this type of thing, we're having to deal with that, the US and European nations as well. The disinformation and engagement in our election systems, that's something that's transatlantic, certainly in the United States, it's certainly in Europe primarily. So I think as we deal with the twin challenge of the rise of China and Russia, I think our allies and NATO, the EU, the transatlantic community will be more effective if we as a community focus on Russia as a priority in Europe. We also need to deal with China's influence and impact in Europe as well. But for the United States, I think on a more of a global basis, that's going to be the challenge of dealing with China. That doesn't mean that European nations and the EU aren't part of that. They are. I think we've all talked about the need for the U.S. to partner with the EU and with allies to deal with China on an economic basis, too. And that's certainly global. But I think the U.S. is going to be the major actor to deal with Chinese influence that it can be threatening on a global basis. That's something we're going to have to do working with allies where we can, where it makes sense. 
But in terms of dealing with Russia, that's much more of a transatlantic and a European focus. And that's where our allies are going to be particularly helpful to give us some space. If they can try to handle a lot of what's happening there, that gives us space and time to deal on a more global basis with China. We're talking about Russia. We're talking about China in a transatlantic context. I would be really interested to think through where does Turkey play a role in all this? Does that throw a wrench in a transatlantic approach to Russia or China? And what does that look like? On Germany and for that matter, France, for a moment, there was a competition who is going to articulate a more concessionary course towards Russia. Macron was trying to out-compete the Germans because he had concerns about French exports and economic engagement with Russia, of course. Historically, traditionally, Germany towers over French economic involvement in Russia, and there is a strong pro-Russian economic lobby in Germany. Then, as colleagues already pointed out, the anti-Washington, anti-American sentiment in Europe that predates Trump. It was the Obama administration that ordered eavesdropping on Mrs. Merkel's Blackberry. As to Turkey, one last point on this is when you are in the closed door conversation with the Germans and others on US-China, they say, guys, you're on your own. Don't bother us with that. We need Chinese investment here in Germany. We want to export to China. We want to invest in China. This is so important to our economy. We cannot be bothered. And there are different approaches. There are people who are concerned about the Chinese intellectual property stealing, about Chinese security. What does Huawei in Europe means? But they were nowhere near as aggressive as we were to block Huawei. They are not our allies in the Pacific. Our allies in the Pacific are going to be Japan, Australia, maybe Korea, India, the Philippines, and Vietnam. I'm not having any expectations from the Europeans significantly and militarily. In terms of Turkey, it's a huge problem. Turkey is motivated by, of course, Mr. Erdogan's thirst for power. And he's been in power since 2002. He's coming up to 20 years, very comparable to Mr. Putin. Turkey is increasingly authoritarian under Erdogan. And there is a serious Islamist ideological component there. Turkey used to have a very good relationship with Israel under secular governments, a lot of military cooperation and whatnot. It is today the main or one of the main supporters of Hamas. It was loudly and unabashedly anti-Israel in the last bout of violence. I think we need to understand that whole bit as a competition between sort of Islamic Brotherhood-leaning countries, Turkey, Qatar, the Shia, Iran, and the rest of the Arab world. And for Turkey, it's very, very important. While we, the United States, are supporting our traditional allies, the Gulfis, the Egyptians, the Israelis, and whatnot, Turkey is looking for others to support and playing a game with Qatar. In the long term, I think Turks understand it. Turkish generals told me in meetings and conversations, if Iran gets nuclear weapons, we, the Turks, will have a nuclear program. Back to my point about the Ak-Kuyu civilian Russian supplied for 
nuclear reactors and in addition nato at the last meeting wanted in Turkey. to have a strong statement march about belarus starts with forcing the ryanair plane down and arresting one of the top leaders of the opposition and also on ukraine turkey stopped all of it so it's fascinating to me how in the short term you see turkey carrying water for putin and now for lukashenko but in the long term, playing a very interesting long game against Russia, supporting Azerbaijan against Russian ally Armenia, playing in the Mediterranean on the opposite side. They were against Bashar al-Assad when Russia was supporting Bashar al-Assad. They were against Bashar al-Assad when Iran was supporting Bashar al-Assad. In the long term, the Turks, like many other people in the region and elsewhere in the world, are historical nations. Their memory goes back in thousands of years, something that is very rare in America. The Turks remember that they fought Russians 22 times and lost 21 times over a period of about 400 plus years from the 17th century and on. They are in the same strategic game as they always were. They don't want to lose. They're being very cautious. They're being tactical as well as strategic. But we need to figure out how to talk to Turkey about the Caucasus, about Central Asia, about the Mediterranean, without bringing NATO to paralysis because of Turkey. Carolyn, you spent a lot of time looking at Turkey Eastern Med issues and just how challenging Turkey is for the Biden administration in terms of both its NATO policy as well as European policy. And for Mideast hands, you can also say Middle East policy as well. When you look at this dilemma and this challenge that Erdogan represents to President Biden and his team, President Biden, of course, is expected to meet with Erdogan on his trip. How do you think the U.S. is going to approach this, to approach Turkey and approach the fact that Turkey in many ways could be the bugbear that haunts their Europe and NATO policy. Absolutely. Turkey is kind of the wrench in, in all of this, really. And on top of that as well, I think Turkey is posing an institutional challenge within NATO, also, of course, within the EU, but particularly within NATO, given Article 5, and also Turkey's fluctuating relationship with Russia. Right before the 70th anniversary NATO summit, where, of course, the drama with Turkey and NATO allies, that was playing out. And it held a number of other issues hostage within NATO. Of course, a defense plan that was supposed to be bulking up NATO presence in Poland, that was held hostage over existing tensions between Cyprus and Turkey and other Eastern Mediterranean players. Right. And we saw major escalation in the Eastern Mediterranean in the summer of 2020. Things have somewhat died down, but those tensions still exist. And that's kind of, as Macron said, that's the elephant in the room with NATO. That doesn't, of course, mean that NATO is irrelevant, but that has made uh, gridlock and institutional issues within NATO very apparent. I've argued this before, while we have China and Russia 
challenging the rules-based international order on a global level, we have a similar dynamic that we saw back in the 1930s when Japan and Italy were challenging the League of Nations. These same institutional questions of effectiveness and success, those are being asked within NATO. And I think the United States should play a role in not only engaging, but also helping to mitigate this issue between Eastern Mediterranean members of NATO and Turkey. If we can get on the same page, they're going to be a very crucial partner in defending not only against Russia, but also China, because China is trying to engage in Central Asia right now. They're trying to essentially increase influence in the Caspian Sea and a number of other regions. And so I think that Turkey, if, again, if, if we can make them a viable partner, if we can get onto the same page, the Biden administration should be tasked with trying to re-engage with them, which is why I think that this sideline discussion at the NATO summit, it is going to be very important. However, lingering issues like S-400 and a number of other sources of tension between the administration and Turkey, that's really going to make the relationship pretty tough to get back right on track. So I want to follow up very quickly on this issue of NATO, because I think there is an interesting dynamic and discussion that's been happening in the United States and also across the pond, so to speak. Um, we know yesterday, the U.S. mission to NATO actually sent out a tweet with a very interesting statement, which was each generation adapted NATO to face the challenges of its times. At the upcoming NATO summit, allies will take action to ensure the alliance can continue to deter and defend against a wide range of security challenges. And it has this very interesting fact infographic that says, what does NATO do? NATO deters and defends against a wide range of security challenges, including Russian aggression, terrorism, climate change, and hybrid and cyber threats. And it shows the statement that NATO provides security for approximately 1 billion people in Europe and North America. And with a little bit of a touch of speaking to this issue of America first and a foreign policy for the American middle class, the stability provided by the alliance has enabled unprecedented economic growth and prosperity in allied countries. Rachel, I'd like to ask you this question. For many Americans who came of age after 1991, which is an increasingly large part of the US population, the Cold War might as well be ancient history. So what is the argument for maintaining the NATO alliance? And specifically, what benefits do Americans receive from NATO? I love this question. So I think it's a fun, fun topic to talk about. So for me, I, I was born in 1987. That means for my generation, my first awakening to the world around me was September 11th. I was 14. It wasn't the fall of the Berlin Wall. It wasn't World War II or its aftermath. It wasn't the Cold War. I think it's easier to take the transatlantic relationship for granted amongst millennials and Gen Z because we've never experienced what it was like when that relationship wasn't strong during, for example, World War II. We don't have the personal connections and that personal identity to tie us to Europe that some of the previous generations have. I come from a Greek family. I still have family there. I have a great uncle who was killed in World War II. So I feel that personal connection, but most Americans don't have that. And by the next generation, the living memory of World War II will be gone. 
At the same time, millennials and Generation Z have shifting opinions on what they think of when they think of the word security and defense. It's much more human-centric. It's climate change. It's migration. This upcoming generation, Generation Z, is the first generation that has spent their entire lives online. It's a completely different world. So this idea of NATO as a military alliance for a lot of people, they just don't understand it. They do see it as a Cold War relic. But I think it's important to spread the message that it's not. It is much more than just a military alliance. It is a community of shared values, along with being the strongest military alliance in history. And let's not forget that the only time NATO's collective defense clause has ever been triggered was the day after September 11, 2001. So the argument for maintaining NATO is that it works. NATO allies have successfully deterred state-level aggression since its founding in 1949. We've been unified in the face of outside threats, and that, in turn, I think, makes Americans and Europeans and the world safer than it would be otherwise. Caroline, I'm interested in your perspective on this question. I absolutely agree with Rachel, where I think a lot of today's generation, Generation Z, millennials, they do look to NATO and take it for granted. But I also think that there is an awareness that it does need to reform operationally and try and modernize and essentially fit NATO into this new geopolitical reality in the international system. And I think that's why the 2030 new concept, the new strategic concept. I think that's why that is so important. And I, you know, when you look at the coverage of, of this upcoming Europe trip, that is sometimes a passing mention. But I think that really that's going to be one of the biggest takeaways from this NATO summit in particular, is adapting NATO to this new geopolitical reality. Because as Rachel mentioned, and I completely agree, it, it works. It absolutely works. There is a shared value system. There are decades of experience and coordination with an alliance system that has effectively deterred the emergence of a third world war. Certainly, of course, there is Russian aggression and there is a challenge to the rules-based order but we have a foundation to work within and to expand upon. And I think that is crucial for the United States and for the Biden administration, especially going forward. So I have a last forecasting question that I'd like to throw to Jim, and then we'll go into final thoughts from each of you. Jim, when we think about the future of NATO, we think the future of U.S. geopolitics, we think of the future of the U.S. approach to great powers, such as Russia and China, the Arctic has started to come back again. And there's an argument to be made that Alaska is one of the most strategic pieces of real estate on earth. And so my question for you is, looking to the future, looking 10, 20 years out from now, how should the U.S. prepare itself for competition in the Arctic? And then what is the nightmare scenario of what could occur in the Arctic that Americans aren't aware of now, but will potentially impact their lives in a big way in the future? You know, when you talk about the Arctic, there's two Arctics. There is the Arctic. If you're walking down the street in Washington, they are assuming that you're talking about Alaska because that's where a lot of the military services now are looking at their position there in Alaska. That's close to Russia. It's close to the maritime routes there. That's our part of the Arctic. The, the Alaska congressional team is always looking for more funding to build infrastructure in Alaska and to deal with Alaskan problems that are very unique to the rest of the United States. So that's one theater of operations, if you will. 
The other Arctic that we talk about is the European Arctic. That's where the Arctic of the Cold War, of the bastion there with the Northern Fleet, what's what Norway worries about, it's what Iceland worries about. During the Cold War days, we, as you all know about the submarines that would go under the ice there and the aircraft that would fly out of Keflavik and the GIUK gap, all of that stuff. That's the Arctic. If you're in Brussels and you talk to someone, that's the Arctic they're talking about. So when we have to prognosticate and think about the Arctic and what the U.S. needs to be doing, we have to think in those two terms, because while Alaska is our Arctic, so is the northern fleet European Arctic because of NATO. So it's an issue that slumbered after the end of the Cold War. When I was in the Pentagon, one of the first big jobs I took on, I was uh, having to take out a lot of the Cold War infrastructure in, in Greenland and Iceland. I took many trips up there as we dismantled the dew line and the, you know, a lot of the radars and a couple of airfields in, in Greenland no one knows about. But uh, we did a lot there. And, and one of the last things I did when I left the Pentagon in 2017, one of the last things I did was starting to put stuff back into the Arctic. So we're back. The Arctic is certainly is sudden, suddenly important. And this time in a very different way because of climate change and global warming and the creation of the northern sea route above above Russia, which has brought China into it because they want very much to use that northern sea route that makes their trade with Europe even cheaper because of quicker maritime route there and less money, et cetera, et cetera. So we're finding ourselves back in the Arctic, but in a strange way. We're not so much worried about uh, Soviet bombers coming across the Arctic. I don't see us necessarily putting up the dew line again, radars across Canada and, and Greenland. But we're going to have to do something up there in terms of deterring further Russian militarization of the Northern Sea Route. I think Russia is the only nation that, that says that that sea route belongs to them. Everyone else says, no, not quite. That's not yours. I think there's obviously already conflict legally, certainly, uh, at this stage with who owns that Northern Sea Route. And Russia is beginning to militarize up there to say, well, uh, we own it and we dare you to come up and do something about it. I don't see us necessarily going up to do that, but uh, we've got to be concerned about how far their militarization goes. And frankly, as we think about the Alaskan Arctic, the U.S. Arctic up there around Alaska, we have to, I think, watch ourselves very carefully so that as we begin, as we are doing, uh, beginning to fortify Alaska much more now, we have more F-35s in Alaska than anywhere else deployed there. So as we begin to do m more and more up there, as we should in Alaska for deterrence sake, we can't cause further Russian militarization who are looking on what we're doing up there as a threat to them. And pretty soon the, the Russian militarization that we see around the Northern Fleet area around Norway and the Arctic Sea and, and that whole area up there, which is highly militarized by the Russians, if we begin to see that happening on the other side, across from Alaska, that's something we don't want. We don't want to see ourselves having to fortify Alaska as much as Norway and Iceland and NATO and what we do up in the European Arctic. We don't want to see that over there, too. So I think we have to be very prudent, and I think we have to have, in the coming years, our eyes wide open with what we are seeing the Russians doing in terms of militarization and making sure that we don't misunderstand it and react in a way that's going to cause a Russian reaction. And pretty soon we find ourselves in a spiral there that was not the intent of the Russians, 
nor of, of us. And we find ourselves backing into that. We don't want that. But at the same time, we can't let our guard down. We have to have what we need up there to have a strong presence in, in Alaska to be able to defend our airspace, but more importantly, to deter. And that's something that is critical to us. It is, this is, comes, comes under Indo-PACOM, by the way. And as I've gone up to Alaska a couple of times now to talk to the military folks up there, they're not really aware of what we do in Europe, in the European Arctic. So we do have to do the right thing there and make sure we don't cause a problem. Back to the European Arctic side, NATO is going to have to determine what is the NATO role for the Arctic. We have enough trouble just keeping battle groups in the Baltics and Poland and trying to deter Russia in the Black Sea area. There's a lot on our plate. So what do we really need to be able to do up in the European Arctic? The Russians have their bastion there. That's where they have their boomers. They can launch from there. They don't have to launch off the coast of the eastern United States in terms of submarine-launched ballistic missiles. They can do it up there. They have cruise missiles up there. Our allies up there are very concerned. They need reassurance that we know how we, NATO, and we, the United States, we know how to fight up there. Should we do that? We have to return to proficiency in terms of ASW and maritime domain awareness out of Iceland. Actually, that is the last thing I did was to get our base there up there that the Icelanders are now running, Icelandic Coast Guard, to get that base in a place where the U.S. can fly P-8s, ASW aircraft. But, you know, we've lost a lot of our skill on Arctic ASW, which is different. So there's a lot that we need to do to strengthen deterrence there and to work with our allies and with NATO to figure out what more needs to be done up there. What are the scenarios for what NATO might be called upon to do up there? And making sure that we don't overreach and we don't create problems there if there are not any. We've got more than enough problems along the frontier in Europe and the Black Sea and the Eastern Med, as you all were talking about. How can we, in a measured way, deal with the Russians in the Arctic? And then with Alaska, how can we deal with that in a measured way as well? Finally, I would say we don't want to surprise each other. Talk about stability. We don't want to surprise each other in the Arctic. We don't want to find ourselves all of a sudden at knife points up there by mistake, miscalculation, accident. So we do need to have confidence building measures up there to deal with notifying each other as we do things in the Arctic so that we don't find ourselves miscalculating a Russian move up there and causing problems and potentially conflict that neither side really wants or needs. Thank you very much, Jim. Well, we've come to the end of our discussion. I wanted to give each of you this last opportunity. Imagine that President Biden is about to step into the room with President Putin. You have a minute to give him advice on what he has to come out of that room with. What is it? I would first say that Biden has an advantage this time as he's already reaffirmed the alliance in Europe. And I also think that he's appeared tougher on Russia. But I'd give Biden the advice of not only appearing tough, but also ensuring that the lines are set in stone in terms of where the United States stands on its values, where it stands on human rights, and where it stands on deterring Russian aggression, particularly with the two tests that Russia just gave the United States with the crisis in Belarus and the buildup in Ukraine, and ensuring that the United States is clear, very clear on where it stands with that and where it also stands with its NATO's partners, which is that the United States will not accept that. And that the United States is, of course, looking for partnership down the line. I would tell the Biden administration that in this particular case, a boring meeting is a good meeting. 
if we can come out of the bilateral summit between Putin and President Biden, with each side coming to the table with unilateral confidence building measures in terms of strategic stability, that will be a success. If, if Biden makes it clear that human rights are important to the United States and that we will not stand for the jailing of opposition leaders, that will be important as well. But I think that we shouldn't expect this summit to result in any meaningful major agreements, but a agreement on both sides to deepen diplomatic relations and get us away from the escalatory relationship that we're in now. As far as my advice, I would say that we have to make sure that it's communicated and understood that adventures and further misuse and further insult to the U.S. election process or cybercrime, things that we are feeling in this country, that we are going to ratchet up and make it very painful for Russia, that we don't want to have a military conflict, but that we are not going to sit back and just do little pieces of sanctions and things that are considered pinpricks, that whether it's us or whether it's our allies, if we feel the pain of what Russia seems to sanction, whether it's criminal gangs or, or it's his own intelligence people, that we're not going to sit back and uh, let him get away with something that he doesn't feel the pain because of. And how you define that, we'll have to define the time. But I think that's got to be the point. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to understand that there are areas where we need to work with him. And in those areas, we're going to have to search for those th those motivations where he is going to see something in it for him. And so we're going to have to try to figure that out, whether it's going to be an arms control or this type of thing. And it's going to take a long time. It's going to take one foot in front of the other. And this summit is going to be the beginning of that journey. And the next meetings cannot be each one a summit that put him as the center of attention and give him pomp and circumstance he seems to like, that we're going to have to begin a series of meetings, a workaday meetings, that we're going to go through on a very predictable schedule so that we can begin to work on these issues, work on these problems. And this can be called a summit, but the next one isn't going to be a summit. It's going to be something where we're going to be trying to fashion solutions and problems. And it's not going to be something with a lot of press attention and stroking of his ego. We'll call this a summit, but this is just the first step of trying to deal with an adversary that's got to feel the pain of his misadventures. Russia is considerably economically weaker than the United States, but it's playing its hand extremely well in the military and strategic and geopolitical game. And we have to give Putin the credit for that. But he also needs to understand what he has to lose. And without being too emotional, as he was in the Stephanopoulos interview, Mr. Biden needs to clarify that there are things to gain and things to lose, and maybe a lot of things to lose for Putin. Putin is not a huge risk taker. He wants to protect his power. That's job one. And I would say nuclear arms control, transparency, to bring the cyber attacks to a halt. We should not tolerate that. And if they don't stop, we have the offensive cyber capabilities that they will not like. Geopolitically, if we can work to restore status quo in Ukraine, let's put the Crimea aside for a moment, but 
restoring territorial sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine, and maybe after that, discussing the Crimea, that would be a big step forward. And finally, to examine or to prod if there are further avenues of discussion on China. When I was in Moscow, people came to me out of the woodwork and said, we need track two on China. Look what's going on. So somebody is waking up there as well. Russia is actually trying to stalemate China within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization on issues that are not good for Russia and are good for China. But I keep my expectations understandably low. If anything good will come out of this summit, I will be actually surprised. And remember, in foreign affairs, history is always a guide. W. Bush, Obama, Trump, they all try to start with a high note, looking into Putin's eyes, pushing the reset button or going to Helsinki. And what came out of that is just tears. Let's not keep our expectations too high. Thank you, Caroline, Rachel, Ariel, and Jim for an excellent, detailed, and robust discussion on President Joe Biden's upcoming trip to Europe and what we can expect from his summit with Vladimir Putin. I want to thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Contours Podcast. 